Good evening. <laughs> what a start. I don't know how many times I said good morning at Mountain View and got it wrong, and I'll never mess it up again. That's the last time right there. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, since Mike has had some way to make life difficult on Anthony Perez next week at the GBC picnic, I thought I would do the same. So instead of counting some specific word, if you can give me the exact word count of my sermon, which I know what it is because I write full manuscript, then you can, if you get the number exactly right, you can throw that number of balloons at Anthony. But you have to give me the number after service, so you can't go back and, and listen to the podcast later and figure it out or whatever. Dean, you down for that? You in? Okay, so that's a lot of tallies starting now. Uh, this morning we're fit, us don't count. This morning we're finishing our church on display series that we've been looking at uh, of these different one another's that we're commanded to demonstrate towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And to close things out, this morning we're going to be looking at praying for one another, something we've already done a couple times in this service and some of you have done for me, which is pretty cool. Now, for most people, and I'm including myself in this, when the topic of prayer comes up, I immediately think, I'm not sure I'm really qualified to be the one that is uh, speaking on this. Um, I know I could be praying more. I know there's people in our church that would be classified as the true prayer warriors, and maybe you feel the same way if, if someone asks you about your prayer life. I think many of us bring a lot of misconceptions, baggage, and maybe even a little bit of guilt when we talk about prayer and the need for it. I remember growing up as a pastor's kid in Pullman, Washington, when faithful servant Bob Harvey would do the announcements at prayer at church. And when I was 10, I swear it seemed like Bob would be praying for 30 minutes straight. Just like, this is the longest prayer I've ever heard in my life. This is never going to end. And I thought, well, I'm not very good at praying because I could never go as long as Pastor Bob Harvey can go. And to be honest, I, I found it quite boring that it took so long, and me and my friends would joke about it in, this, in the, the, the congregation there. Uh, we had another guy in our church who would pray in these and thous when he would pray in, in a prayer circle. So it was like a King James version of the Bible come to life sitting in the room with you. And I thought, well, my prayers aren't as fancy as that guy, so there's no way I'm as good of a prayer as he is. Uh, and another time when I was little, I was spending the night at my cousin's house in the summer, and we prayed before we, we went to bed, and I simply said, amen, at the end of my prayer when I was done. And my uncle said, you have to pray in Jesus' name, amen, or else it doesn't count. <laughs> so I went to bed that night scared that every prayer I'd ever said to God hadn't been heard, and I started to question, am I actually a Christian because I don't remember what I signed off with when I was six years old and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. So the next morning, I talked to my parents. They assured me that, no, it's okay. God always hears me, but I do always close with, in Jesus' name, amen, ever since that day. <laughs> uh, just, I don't know, it's a good way to close a prayer. I'm not saying that, like, I think you have to do that to make a prayer count, but uh, I'm sure it goes back to, to that memory. I bet if we asked the congregation of stories of the power of prayer in your life that someone could tell of a time that 
what seemed like an incurable disease was miraculously healed, or the grandparents that woke up at 3 a.m. every morning to pray for four hours straight before the day began, or that person growing up who when they prayed, it just seemed like there was some sort of like power in the air or something. It just was so, so mighty when they would get up and pray. Um, we all have experiences with prayer that may influence how we approach it. And today we're going to look at James 5, 13 through 18. You can start turning there. James 5, 13 through 18, page 1013 in my Bible, to see the practice and the power of believing prayer. So as we're looking at this book, I'm really going to try to stick to just James as much as possible. James, who wrote this, was Jesus's brother. He was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus was alive, but post-resurrection became one of the top leaders in the church and was kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, A first century historian reported that James spent so much time in prayer, his knees became hard and calloused like a camel. So church history uh, sometimes remembers the author of this letter as camel knees, which I actually had not heard that before until researching for this. But I'm not so sure that James would have been offended by that nickname. I think he would have been more offended if he was accused of having soft, smooth knees in prayer. You still got me? I don't know what that was. Uh, Pastor H.B. Charles says, To be prayerless is to be non-Christian. Prayer is to faith what oxygen is to the lungs. Show me a person who does not pray, and I'll show you a person who is spiritually dead. So through the course of James' letter, what he does is he gives this series of tests of genuine faith. And the relationship between prayer and faith is affirmed at the beginning of James. In James 1, 5 through 8, uh, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Should I switch to the handheld? So James affirms the relationship between prayer and faith at the beginning of his book, and then he closes here in James 5, 13 through 18. Again, and this passage has had some controversy over the year. I'll just go handheld. This passage has had some controversy over the years related to a verse about healing in here. We're not going to get too much into that because when you come to this text without some sort of hidden agenda for what you want it to say and let it speak for itself, it's pretty clear that this passage is about one thing, and that's prayer. The word pray and prayer are used seven times in this passage, at least once in each of the six verses we'll look at. And the point of this emphasizes that prayer and faith are tied together. Genuine faith is demonstrated by a prayerful dependence upon God in every situation. So what does it mean to handle everything in prayer? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to start with talking about the practice of believing prayer, and we'll look at the three different ways we're called to pray, called a personal prayer, intercessory prayer, and corporate prayer, and then the power of believing prayer, where James will affirm the power of prayer, and then he gives us an illustration uh, through the prophet Elijah at the end. Let's read our passage, James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So why pray? It says at the beginning here and throughout the Bible, because God commands it. James thirteen or 5, 13 through 15 is a divine call to personal intercessory and corporate prayer. So call to personal prayer to start. Verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So these two rhetorical questions establish the text's main point right up front at the beginning. Genuine faith is demonstrated by a prayerful dependence upon God in every situation. We trust God when things are bad. James asks, is anyone among you suffering? To suffer here, we're talking about to experience pain, endure affliction, or undergo difficulty. It's the internal, internal turmoil of one facing difficult circumstances. James 5.10, just a little bit before our passage, says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Micaiah, he suffered imprisonment. Isaiah suffered rejection. Jeremiah suffered opposition. Ezekiel suffered grief. Hosea suffered marital problems. And these suffering prophets remind us that godly people are not exempt from suffering. Suffering doesn't assume that sin is happening that's causing the suffering. We need to make that clear. But the question, is anyone among you suffering, assumes that there are suffering Christians. It may be physical, emotional, financial, relational, or a spiritual trial that they suffer. James 1-2 at the beginning says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And now James gives further counsel to Christians suffering trials with let him pray. Let them pray. And I want you to stop and just think as we get into this of what prayer actually is. When you pray, you recognize the sovereignty of God. You, when you pray, you recognize the presence of God. When you pray, you recognize the power of God. And when you pray, you recognize the love and mercy and grace of God. So when you pray, you're not only seeking God's help, but in some ways, you're actually warring for your own soul. Prayer is, is spiritual warfare. It talk, talks about that in Scripture a lot, too, that in that moment of trouble, when struggles come our way, what are all of us tempted to think? Maybe when difficulties are hard, we, we start to think, God's not really in control of this world, or God doesn't have power to handle this situation. God's not near to me. God doesn't seem to care what I'm going through. And in those really difficult times of suffering, it's possible that some of us, I've been there, have re-examined the promises of God. All of us have wondered about his nearness when bad things happen. We've questioned his sovereignty or maybe doubted his power. And what prayer does is it invites us again to embrace what God has said about himself, to believe it's actually true, and to seek his help. Uh, Pastor and author Paul Tripp says, 
There is no more radical act in the Christian faith than prayer to take your life, to take your struggle, to take your most precious things, to take your most difficult things, and to place them in the hands of someone you can't see and you can't hear, you can't touch, you can't feel. It's an act so radical it can hardly be described. That's what prayer is. Prayer invites us to embrace the reality of the existence of God and rest in the truth of his promises. We'll sing at the end of service that all of his promises are yes and amen today. I wish I could say that this is easy for me, that in those times of struggle, my first instinct is, well, I got to go to God in prayer. It's not, if I'm being honest. I wish I could say that I was a better prayer than I was a whiner and a complainer, and some of you might fall into that same camp with me. We need the reminder that God is present, that he is near, and he's a God of powerful, transforming grace. Do you really believe that when you come to the Lord in prayer? Or do you pray, but you take back control of your life once again, or your life again once you've done the right thing of bringing it to God? Do you, do you take it back, that thing you're praying for? Do you hold it in your hands and grow more and more anxious with trying to fix things yourself? Here, James makes it easy. Pray. It's a divine command. And the grammar in the Greek here, if you, if you look at how James wrote it, it's implying a continual action of prayer. The benefits of prayer are not mentioned, so we, don't, we shouldn't view prayer as a means to an end. But the act of prayer is as vital as the answer to prayer. There's a famous quote, I can't remember if it was Gretzky or Jordan who said it first, that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Was that Gretzky or Michael Jordan? Jordan? Michael Scott, yeah, I have seen that poster, yeah. Well, God doesn't hear 100% of the prayers we don't make, right? If you don't pray, he can't answer it. We have to, we have to actually come to the Lord in prayer. Prayer may not produce the answer you want, but it will give you the answer you need. Prayer will bring you out or through your sufferings. Uh, Paul talks a lot about his thorn in the flesh, whatever that might have been, and he repeatedly asks the Lord to remove it. 2 Corinthians 12.9, he gets his response, and God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Prayer can take away your pain. It didn't for Paul here, but prayer can also transform your pain. So we come to God when we are struggling with prayer, but we also thank God when things are good. The second part of verse 13 says, is anyone cheerful? Now, cheerful here is not like a happy-go-lucky attitude towards life, and it's more than uh, a carefree response to, to good things happening to you. It's to, to be of good cheer, good spirits, or good courage. And while some Christians are suffering, there are others we'll find around us who are cheerful. James commands the cheerful, let him sing praise. Now, this, this verb is not shifting us from praying to singing. Singing is prayer. When you, I mean, we literally just sang two songs that were like straight out of Scripture, right? That we're, we sang the Lord's Prayer in that last song before I came up here. A healthy Christian is a singing Christian, and a healthy church is a singing church. We sing prayers to God. Christian singing is adoration to God. It's not entertainment for us. Uh, Ephesians 5.19 characterizes spirit-filled Christians as 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Think about this. If, if the world is as broken as Scripture describes it to be, if the curse of, of the fall has literally altered everything that exists, so there's a, a way in which nothing perfectly operates in the way that it was intended, if, in fact, this world, the entire world, is groaning, waiting for redemption, and if, if it is a fact that all of us, every human being, is fl- a flawed human being because sin in some way has damaged every aspect of our being, and if all of us broken people are running into other broken people in a broken, fallen world, all of that, how in the world does anything good ever happen in life? If you uh, go through everything I just said, you could argue that this should be an absolutely horrific place to live, and sometimes we might feel that way. But all of us in this room still experience joys, right? We might have difficult times, but we have joyful times too. All of us experience wonderful things. All of us experience things that have come to us that we could have never planned and we could have never controlled. Now, why does that happen? We don't deserve that if you look at how broken this world is and how broken we are. There's only one reason, and that's that our God is a God of amazing grace, and he graces us every day. I think our problem is is that we don't see it. We don't recognize it. We're tempted to forget God when things are bad. We're more tempted to forget God when things are good. That's what I'm guilty of. It's easy for me to go to God when things are bad. When things are good, it's easy to think, well, I got this. Things are going great. No, 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 no. That's still God who has a hand in everything that's happening. Acknowledge your dependence upon God in every situation you face. Proverbs 3, 6 says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. When things are bad, trust God in prayer. When things are good, thank God in praise. Paul closes 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, saying, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But not only does God welcome us to come to him in trouble and praise him and sing to him when we have reason to celebrate, but God in his grace has also provided resources of help. So let's look at at what comes next in verses 14 and 15. Let's read that. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So James raises another problem that Christians face, and then he prescribes a response. Prayer is, again, the solution to the problem. But the focus here is moving from personal prayer to intercessory prayer. So intercessory means interceding, praying on behalf, doing something on the behalf of somebody else. Verse 13 teaches us to respond to the changes of life with believing prayer, prayer of faith. And verses 14 and 15 teaches that believing prayer is still the solution when things are so bad that you can't pray for yourself. And James makes this point by calling for intercessory prayer for the sick. So at the beginning there, is anyone among you sick? Sick means to be without strength. It could refer to to weaknesses of any kind. Um, It's used here, though, I think, to refer to the physically physically weak, not like spiritually weak. 
Uh, this is our third rhetorical question, and it again, it assumes what is being addressed and asked in this question. Christians get sick. James describes a person who is so ill that they're incapacitated. They're stuck at home. And verse 14 commands, let him call for the elders of the church to pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What God has done is he has given us resources of help in his church. Our walk with God, this is a community mission, a community project that we're on. You weren't designed to do this by yourself. This is a community faith, and God embodies his love in the resources that he has given us. We're not meant to try to do this by ourselves. So first, James would point to the resources of the elders of the church. So what God has done is he has qualified and set apart a leadership for his church, and those leaders are then commissioned with providing pastoral care for the body of Christ. Just think about what a wonderful thing that is, that God has established a way for there to be physical, visible care for us. And that care pictures the care that God has for us in a real way. It puts flesh and blood on the care that God has for us. The elders of the church are not faith healers, though. All right? First Timothy says elders should be able to teach. Well, here, James says elders should also be able to pray. The Bible says to call the elders to pray for healing. And as the elders pray, they should be anointing them with oil. Now, anointing with oil, this could be symbolic of showing like God's hand on someone in, in a physical, symbolic way, or medicinal. I think here we're, we're looking at a, a medical use of oil. We see this in other parts of the New Testament. In Mark 6, 13, it says of the disciples, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, in Luke 10, 34, it says, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So this was a medicine that they used back in the day, whatever it was, a delicious olive oil with just a hint of, I don't, I don't know what it was. Uh, but there's no magic in this oil. If you see someone on TV, a pastor trying to sell you this bottle of oil that will heal all of your afflictions, uh, that's a waste of money. That probably is olive oil, and it would go better on a chicken breast or something like that. There's also no magic in the waters of baptism, right? That's where you're getting more of a symbol idea of something. It's not being baptized that forgives you of your sins. It's a picture, a symbol of what has already taken place in the life of believers. So uh, anointing with oil, this is just ancient medication. But God makes his care known by the care uh, of his leaders that he has set up, who stand over us, who anoint us, who touch us with their hands, and in doing this, pictures the love that God has for us. Verse 15 goes on and says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this reference to the prayer of faith, this is the only place in Scripture that we have the prayer of faith come up. And this is where people take this in ways that maybe is not what is actually intended here, of that there's some magic word, some combination of prayer of faith that can save and heal anyone. The prayer of, of faith does save the sick. It's not the anointing with oil. But the prayer of faith, again, it's not a special category of prayer. It is a reminder that prayer and faith must work together, as we saw at the beginning of James 1, uh, verses 5 through 8. The prayer of faith 
will save the one who is sick, but the Bible doesn't guarantee, if we look throughout Scripture, that every sick person will be healed. But I think what this passage does is it challenges us to believe God can, God does heal the sick when we pray. But it's not the prayer of faith that heals. James says the Lord will raise him up. Healing happens by the sovereign power and authority of God. The prayer of faith is is no magical formula for supernatural healing. But we should pray with confidence that incurable diseases is not in God's vocabulary. And I'm sure there are many stories we could share in this room about that. I'll be honest, to use a Mike Dahlism, and I know we all want to be honest. Is that how it goes, something like that? I don't know. I'm guilty of when praying for someone is uh, someone who is sick of like almost hemming and hawing by saying like, if it's in your will, God, please heal this person. But I understand that it's not always in your will to heal them, and that's okay because like you're still. It's like I'm like putting caveats on. Yeah, God's probably not going to heal this person, but it doesn't mean that He's not God. And I think passages like this are showing us to just pray with faith and conviction that He can heal. If I trust in that, and can, and then God can decide if it's in His plans to do the healing. The prayer of faith is having faith that God can do the things that we're actually praying for. Does that make sense? So James goes on and says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So again here, this is an idea of intercessory prayers, of someone praying on behalf of someone else that they may be forgiven for their sins. And it immediately calls to mind Abraham when he's bargaining with the angel of the Lord for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, of what if there's 10 souls that actually follow you? Would you save the city then? He, he bargains from 100 down to 10. It reminds us of Jesus praying for forgiveness of the people who are putting him to death while he's on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God hears those prayers. He answers those prayers when we're praying on behalf of other people that we hope, we pray, we trust that God will work in some way to bring someone to forgiveness of sins. And he's given us those resources of help. So then we move on to the last part. The circle of prayer expands as we continue through our text. Verse 13 urges believers to pray. Verse 14 and 15 calls for intercessory prayer. And then verse 16 calls the entire congregation to mutual prayer. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So James points to us another resource, and it's the resource of the body of Christ, of brothers and sisters in the Lord. If you look throughout the Pauline epistles, his letters, this is all over the teaching of Paul. Paul says that the body of Christ reaches full maturity in Christ as every joint and ligament and eyeball and nose and finger does its part. When we're all doing what we're designed to do together, that's when the church is functioning the right way. So it's not just the elders that God has raised up to demonstrate his love. It's literally every member of the body of Christ. It's meant to be part of what God is doing in the lives of every member of the body of Christ. This church should not just be a place where you come to find ministry for your needs. This church should be a place that is itself a ministering community to one another. And I have to say, in all the churches I've been in, GBC is unique and the number of people who are ministering to each other in some way. So props to you on that, and let's continue to do that work that we've been called to. But I think a big and difficult and potentially risky part 
of us ministering to one another is confessing our sins to one another. So as an example, I have a list of sins I committed this week that I'd like to read off and confess to each of you. Then Pastor Mike's going to come up along with the rest of the elders, and then if we don't have volunteers, we'll start with who's been at GBC the longest to really get the ball going on confess. It doesn't seem enthusiastic. You don't want to do that? Just all stand up and confess our sins to one another? We're called to do that. We're called to confess our sins to one another, but James is not talking about haphazard confession. I'm not sure how beneficial it would be to the church if every week whoever is preaching to you started off by confessing all of their sins of exactly everything they did. Are you going to be focusing on the sermon or are you going to be focusing on, really? They did that this week? Okay, I kind of hung up on that. Confession should only be as public as the sin. Confess private sins privately, confess public sins publicly. But I think we do need to work on and get past the the value of privacy that Western culture uh, has kind of put on us and stop putting on a good face in public, and that's the only thing anyone knows about us. That denies the reality that we all have struggles in our lives. And I got good news. It's okay that you're not perfect. Sheila realized for the first time after three and a half years of me being here that I am not perfect. I remember what I did wrong today, but I was like, oh, I'm glad you caught on. This is, oh, I didn't have my slides ready to go. I had to type them in really quick before, before I came up here. The sooner you all realize I'm not perfect, the better it's going to be for everybody. And the sooner you realize everyone sitting beside you in this church is not perfect, the better it's going to be for everybody. We have a pretty strict policy at this church that there are no perfect people allowed at this church. So if you fall into that category, you should be up here or we should talk afterwards because I don't think you're going to make it uh, into that, uh, that categorization. We need one another's help, and it's appropriate to share in a proper way with a brother or sister in Christ uh, struggles that we have to seek their wisdom, to seek their prayer, to seek their accountability. So this morning, I want you to think, who, who knows you? Who really knows you? Not just, hey, how you doing? Oh, fine, good, great, that we do on Sunday mornings. Who could you go to to be open and honest with, and they will respond with love and prayer? One of the, the uh, ministries we have in place is our men and women Bible study groups that are going to be starting up again soon, and our community groups where it's a larger group of people coming together. That's where you start to build those intimate relationships where we should be able to confess our sins to one another and work through our struggles together. I think what James is pointing to and what he's hoping that every church will be is this kind of Christ-centered, honest, intimate, grace-driven, redemptive community where we don't have to deceive one another into making it look like we have everything figured out, but we all acknowledge our need for a Savior and our need for someone to hold us accountable and give us wisdom and prayer when we struggle. When we confess to one another, though, we should not condemn one another. We should pray for one another. A healthy prayer life consists of supplication, asking for your own needs, and intercession, asking for the needs of others. Even when we cannot pray with one another, we should pray for one another. We should cover one another in prayer, and then we will experience this spiritual healing, is what it's talking about there, from our merciful Savior. So we've seen the practice of believing prayer. Now let's look at the power of believing prayer in our last couple verses. Again, why pray? We pray because God commands it. Prayer is an act of obedience to God. 
even if prayer produced no practical, positive, or powerful results, we should pray because God commands it. But thankfully, though, pray because it does work. It's impossible for us to overstate the power of prayer. And in verse 16, uh, James affirms the power of prayer. He says, the prayer of a righteous person, this is the second part of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This sentence is a little difficult to translate. Your Bible might even have a footnote of like, oh, it actually could be translated this way as well. It's not difficult to understand, though. What James is affirming is that there is power in prayer. The power is not in prayer itself, though, here, he's saying. He's saying the, pr- the power is tied to the character of the one who prays. Verse 16 calls them a righteous person. Now, when we're calling someone righteous, it's important to figure out how do we get to that status as a righteous person. God is infinitely holy. We are corrupt and depraved and sinful. We cannot be accepted into God's presence by our own merit, our own works, our own actions. When you run to the cross and confess your sins to God and receive the forgiveness of God through faith in the atoning blood of Jesus, you are declared righteous at that point before God. It's through Christ that we can approach God in prayer. Justification by faith, though, that's what we call that, that moment of, of, of asking for forgiveness. That doesn't automatically mean that you pray with power. Righteousness is not just about a positive status in Christ. It's also about how you practice your faith. And this is what James is referring to when he speaks of the righteous person. As you pray... God is not just listening to what you say, God is watching how you live. Our call to worship this morning in Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Sin short circuits the power of prayer. So the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Great power, what that means there, this is like inherent strength, It's power waiting to be unleashed. It's untapped resources. And the working aspect, this is effective power. It's the ability to accomplish a thing. It's the power that gets things done. So great power works when the righteous pray. And James gives us an illustration of this in verses 17 and 18. James uses Elijah to illustrate the power of prayer. If you look throughout this letter, this is actually the fourth Old Testament character that James mentions. Uh, he mentions the faith slash works of Abraham, the saving faith of Rahab, and the steadfast endurance of Job. And now James mentions the prayer of Elijah. Now, when you hear the name Elijah, you got to go back to the Old Testament. We're going back to First and Second Kings. What do you think of? You probably think great prophet, maybe the greatest prophet. Most people hold him in esteem as the greatest prophet. The things that Elijah accomplished and experienced are amazing when you read through his life story. Here's the temptation. We say, well, God answered Elijah. I'm no Elijah. And it doesn't seem too comforting until you pay attention to the words here. And it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was just like us. There were moments when Elijah demonstrated great courage. There are other moments when he panicked and ran for his life. There are moments when it seemed like Elijah believed that God could do absolutely anything. 
There are other moments where this man is in a deep depression, telling God it would be better if I died. And Elijah is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. We went through the life of Elijah not that long ago in youth group because I can find me in there someplace. Somewhere between great faith and dark depression, I'm probably on that end too much, me and you, you can relate to Elijah. This man is like us. The power in Elijah's life, it was not Elijah. The power in Elijah's life was God. That, that's the lesson for us here. And when we come to God in faith, amazing things will happen. An ordinary man stopped the rain. Uh, there's an old saying, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, Elijah did something about it. Verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So this is, this is a story back in 1 Kings 17, where Elijah comes to the evil King Ahab. He says in 17.1, as the Lord lives, the God of Israel lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So James, though, he gives us a peek behind the scenes. Before Elijah confronted Ahab, he prayed to God, and then Elijah declared that it would not rain. Elijah had power in public because he took the time to pray in private. James doesn't credit the fact that Elijah was an anointed prophet. He was a man with a nature like ours who prayed. God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people who pray in faith. And then he was also an ordinary man who sent the rain. Verse 18 finishes our story. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. The wicked king Ahab, he ignores God for those three and a half years. In fact, he's out to kill Elijah, thinking if I kill him, the rain will come back. Elijah prayed it would not rain, and God answered. It got Ahab's attention. The drought shuts down the economy of Israel. There was desperate need as the ground is producing no food. No kingly decree could fix the problem. But Elijah, after three and a half years, he prays again, and God answered. Heaven gave rain. The earth bore fruit. Needs would not have been met by the people supporting or protesting against Ahab. Only God sends the rain from heaven. And God refused to send a drop of rain without the righteous man praying for it. The power was not in the prophet. The power was in the prayer. But the prayer is powerful and works because Elijah was righteous and his righteousness came from his dependence on God, not his own power to be right with God. So there's great comfort in this example since Elijah is like us. The power that Elijah experienced is the power of God, and that power is available to everyone in this room. You can't think about the power of God through prayer without connecting the dots to Jesus. It was the life of Jesus, that perfect life of obedience, the death of Jesus where he took our sins on himself, the resurrection of Jesus where he conquered sin and death and gifted us with life, giving us the ability to be forgiven and reconciled to our heavenly father and seen and righteous in his, high, in his eyes. That is the reason, the only reason, that we can receive this invitation from our God to come to him in prayer. He welcomes us because of Jesus. Jesus is the door of entry into the presence of God. Have you trusted Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus every time you come to the Lord in prayer? Are you praying in Jesus' name? Amen. 
And does your trust in Jesus drive you to seek God in times of trouble and in times of celebration? I hope that we all come to an understanding of the need and power of prayer. I hope you you really believe that we do have a sovereign, powerful, loving, and gracious God who is near his people, who cares about them, and who will listen to their prayers to do mighty things. Are you taking advantage of the resources that he's, he's placed in our lives for us to use? Your walk with God, again, this is a community project, a community mission. Your God has come to make community with you. He has placed you in the community of his church so that you would seek and find the help that only he can give. If you're in this room and you've not asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and put your trust in him as your only hope of salvation and join the community of brothers and sisters in Christ, which extends outside this, the walls of this room to the ends of the earth, I would ask you to please come talk to me or an elder or, or someone you know here about why being a part of this faith community is one of the greatest gifts you can be a part of. And I also want you all to, to be reminded, since we're talking about prayer, Anthony mentioned it during announcements, we have a week of prayer from September 5th to 11th coming up in two weeks as we begin our series on the book of Colossians. We're going to have multiple opportunities to pray for and with one another that week. So make sure you're checking the bulletin online and we'll tell you more about it of when those times will be. But I also want to encourage us to do that even when we don't have a special week set aside for praying for one another. Uh, In fact, let's close praying together right now. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that uh, you are a gracious and merciful God who, uh, through the work of your Son, has allowed us the opportunity to be forgiven, to be reconciled, and to be made uh, righteous in your sight. And I pray above all else that everyone in this room will come to a point of having their sins forgiven and have their trust ultimately lie in you. I pray that you will help us in times of, of struggles and trouble and difficulties to turn to you, to not um, think that you've abandoned us or, or to be upset at you, but to uh, remember your promises that you're right there and that you're listening and that you care for us. And when things are good, I pray we wouldn't forget you. I know it's easy for me to, uh, to not notice the grace and goodness that you bring on a daily basis uh, to my life. I pray that we'd be a people who are always aware of what you're doing in the world around us. I pray, too, that that this church would become a church who's known by our community together, um, all the different things we've talked about in our One and Neary series of, uh, of harmony and working alongside one another and taking up each other's burdens, and that we would pray for one another, that we'd be involved in each other's lives to know the things we need to pray for. I pray you'd help us to be open and honest and willing to confess our sins to one another, and that we would know that um, much as there's no condemnation from you, that we're not going to have an attitude of condemning one another, but we're going to um, work with each other and hold each other accountable and, and, and seek your, your word and wisdom of how to handle uh, the sins in our lives. God, I pray, too, that you will help us to be people who truly believe in the power of prayer, that we would um, seek to be righteous people who are seeking to do what is right in your eyes, and that um, the faith that we bring and our prayer to you is, is a trust that you can do all things and that you will do all things. Uh, help us to not 
do the, the caveat prayers that I'm guilty of, but to just pray with confidence and faith that you are uh, a sovereign, powerful God who can handle all things. So God, I pray that everyone in this room will come to know you, that you will work in their lives in such a way that they can no longer deny who you are and what you have done for them. We thank you so much for uh, the gift of your son. Uh, we thank you, Jesus, for uh, enduring the pain on the cross and even praying for forgiveness of those who are in the middle of crucifying you uh, during your last moments. I thank you for the hope of the resurrection and how that just uh, gives us something to set our eyes on that when those times of, of struggle come our way, we have something to, uh, to hope to and to look forward to. I pray you would be with us all and the rest of our time of bringing worship to you this morning. Through Jesus' name, amen.